1 Corinthians chapter 14. If uh, you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Uh, if you're watching us online right now, we'll have the text up on your screen when we get to that part of our time together. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, we would invite you to take one of those physical ones home that's located in, underneath the seat in front of you. There's some scattered around the room. Uh, we believe that God uses His Word for all kinds of important things, but the chief thing that He uses it for, among all of the other great things, is that He uses it to reveal Himself to His people. Like, we want you to know God. We want everything in, in and about and around your life to be shaped by, defined by that knowing of Him. And so the Scriptures are, are what He uses to do that in you. It, it just, like, it's common sense, like, really kind of street smart level stuff to just say, start reading the Bible and put one in people's hands and come up with creative ways to read it and all these kinds of things. So if you don't have one, take that one. Um, if you're new here, we are walking together through the letter that we call 1 Corinthians. Uh, it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a very young uh, church in the Greek city of Corinth. And so Christians are really brilliant when it comes to, to naming things. And so the letter to the Corinthians we call Corinthians. All right? um, it, it's a church that Paul knew incredibly well. Uh, he had helped to start the church there. Uh, only a few years before this letter is written, uh, he Paul had a ministry where uh, he would start a church and be there for a little while and then raise up a leader and leave that leader there and he'd move on to the next place and start a new church in that new place. All right? And so it had been a few years since he was uh, in Corinth and so he started writing letters back. Uh, we, we call this letter 1 Corinthians, but it's, it's kind of a weird name because this is only the first letter that we have record of. All right? We know for certain that we are being dropped into a much, much longer conversation. At the very least, Paul has written already one letter to them and at the very least, they have already written one letter to Paul over and over again throughout the course of 1 Corinthians. Paul is actually going to answer specific questions that they had asked him. All right? And so uh, that means that there's some history here. It, it, we're not stepping into to some people who don't know each other. They, they, got, they got a complicated history. Uh, the Corinthian church just couldn't seem to get things figured out, which is interesting because that's not at all how they saw themselves. All right? They thought that they had things figured out. Right? They, they kind of carried an overinflated view of themselves even. Um, and so they, they were pretty young. They were incredibly talented, really bright bunch of people. And so as the story often goes in situations exactly like that, they got ahead about them. All right? And so they, they puffed themselves up just a little bit, and they, they got excited about their own ability and overinflated understanding of their maturity and their insight and their ability before, the God, before God. And so that led to a number of problems, both in the leadership and in the day-to-day -day life of the church. There, there were some things that were lacking in Corinth, and there was a lot of misunderstanding and a whole bunch of malpractice. The Corinthian church was kind of a mess, but Paul is incredibly patient with them. Incredibly patient with them. He loves them. He wants way more good for them than they even understand and want for themselves. And so the angle that, that the Apostle Paul approaches them from, approaches this stuff from, is to kind of continually come back to the truth that God's kingdom is completely upside down from all of the competing kingdoms of this world. It values different things. It lifts up and it exalts different things, and it does that on purpose. It's not some kind of weird oversight on behalf of God. You know, he, he, he wasn't smart enough to, to think about how the cultures would shift and how to keep up with a culture that's shifting. No, it's, it's upside down, intentionally upside down on purpose. Why? Because that's the way that God will be most glorified. Well, how, how does that happen? Like, wouldn't it make more sense for everybody to see what God's doing and go, yeah, that's great? No. 
Now, see, God's kingdom is upside down on purpose because entrance into God's good kingdom can only ever come through hearts that have been changed by God to love him and what he loves. He's got to do something in you before you can do something yourself. See, without a heart change, there is always going to, the, the, his kingdom is always going to seem just a little bit undesirable. Backwards, even. Counterintuitive. And even for those of us who by God's grace have been brought into his good kingdom, the upside-down realities of his kingdom still are going to seem a little backwards and upside-down to us. We, we too are guilty of this sometimes, and it's sometimes going to feel foreign to us. Sometimes, on rare occasions even, it might even feel a little bit contemptible, shameful even. You don't have to look very far to prove that point. The very centerpiece of our faith, the, the death of Jesus on the cross to make full and final payment for, for our sin. Listen, that's about as otherworldly as you can get. It, it really is. Earlier in the letter, Paul calls the cross of Christ a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. What does that mean? Well, it immediately wipes the legs out from under anybody who would ever try to earn their way into God's presence. And it immediately wipes the, the legs out of, from under anybody who would try to use God to earn their way into something else. You don't get to play that game very long if you understand the cross correctly. It doesn't work anymore. God won't let you get away with playing that game. See, if you truly understand what's going on in the cross of Jesus, all spiritual games come to a swift end. He's designed it that way on purpose. So whether you... Whenever we find ourselves in the middle of these kind of two kingdoms and dissonance, right? There's, there's some friction there, and we find ourselves sometimes in these moments where I'm not really sure if I want to buy into the logic of what he's doing. Because i got this thing over here that I really value and this thing that I really kind of want, but he's calling me to this thing over here. And so I, I've got this weird moment of dissonance in my heart and my life going, I don't know which one I want to choose because this one looks really good. Whenever we find ourselves in these Moments of dissonance, whenever we reach that moment of, I'm not sure I want to buy into God's logic, there's a question that we've been trying to train ourselves, discipline ourselves to ask is, is it beautiful? Right? Okay, it's, it's hard to buy into at the moment, but, but is it good? Is it true? Yeah, it may, it may cost me something I value over here, this temporary thing over here, but does God's kingdom actually have eternal value in a world that's fading away? And if the answer to those questions are yes, well, then that means that dissonance is only a temporary reality. It means that God's doing something that has eternal ramifications to it, and maybe we can trust his promises. So we can hang out in the dissonance for a little bit, waiting for our eternal happily ever after. So you ready to take the next step? It's been a good letter so far. What do we got next? So we spent the last couple of months now kind of digging into with Paul, focusing more specifically on some things that, that played out in the day-to-day -day life of the church. And so uh, back in chapter 11, Paul starts uh, by addressing gender roles and head coverings, which, I mean, let's be honest, it's everybody's favorite text, right? Like, it, who, who wants more head covering sermons? That was a fun one to preach. But Paul moves on from there to talking about our posture when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And those two topics are way more connected than people often give them credit for. 
our posture when we're consecrating ourselves before the Lord. He also covers the beauty of God's design by bringing diversity to the church body. we got different talents and different skill sets and different giftings and different aptitudes and personalities and abilities and all these kinds of things. And he unites them together in one body made of many members, yet somehow one organism. It's a glorious reality. But then Paul devotes the lion's share of the largest section of the last four chapters that we've been looking at discussing spiritual gifts, there's these, this, these special God-given abilities that individuals within the larger body bring to the table for the purpose of the body. And some of those gifts seem really impressive to us. And so I think wrongly, we put them up on a pedestal and exalt them. And then there's these other gifts that don't seem so impressive to us. And so I think wrongly, we tend to ignore them or write them off. And I get it, the, the more miraculous gifts they have a certain gravitas and appeal to them, right? Like we kind of want to know how they work and kind of wish secretly that we had them because like that would make us pretty awesome, right? At least I'll be honest, that's what I think sometimes. We want to know more about them. But my favorite thing about what Jeff said last week was that rather than aiming at to, to tell us exactly what the spectacular gifts well, that was interesting. I'll just preach in the dark. All right, so rather than telling us, my favorite thing that Jeff told us last week, that rather than Paul trying to explain to us the ins and the outs, all of the, the specific things about what these spectacular gifts do and are, Paul instead aims to show us the, what the correct use of those spiritual gifts always results in. All right? When used correctly, something always happens. And it's not making a big deal out of me. All right? And so for the last two and a half chapters now, the Apostle Paul has continually banged that drum over and over again that these gifts aren't given to you so that you can make a big deal out of you. They're given for the church and they're given so that, they can, uh, so that we can be servants of each other. All right? That's the argument that Paul keeps making. And they're given so that the gospel will be made known and God's kingdom will be expanded. When the gifts are used correctly, that is the result. It's not that I, I get a platform for myself. No, 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 no. No, the gospel is heard and the kingdom goes forth. So just like Paul was incredibly thorough dealing with leftover pagan idol meat, he's, he's pretty thorough here too. He's got, he's got one more thing to say. And so we're going to pick it up in verse 26 of chapter 14. 1 Corinthians 14, starting in verse 26, Paul says this. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Okay, so Paul is going to, to begin to, to kind of put a bow on everything that he's been talking about for the last four chapters, everything he's been talking about since chapter 11. And so all of those things, I think could, I could argue, all those things that affect the life of the church can all be summed up with one single phrase. Let all things be done for building up. And that's his summation sentence. Let all things be done for building up. We've said it several times in here before, but it's, it's an important enough question that we need to come back to it as often as we can. Simply ask yourself the question, who, am, who exactly am I trying to make much of in this moment? And if you can answer that question honestly, if you can answer that question truthfully, well, then you've got a pretty good idea whether your current attitude and actions are either building up or the opposite of building up. They're actually doing damage. 
This is one of the countless, countless reasons why new birth really matters. It's why it really matters, because Jesus has to give his people a new heart. Like People can play religious games for a while. They can play spiritual games long enough to convince others and maybe even lie to themselves and convince themselves right, that they're doing good, godly things. You can play church for a while. But listen, it takes a new heart with new Jesus-instructed affections to actually do this. To be others focused in such a way that you empty yourself the moment you walk in the door here for the good of someone else. Paul pictures a church and a culture of a church that's completely different than what's playing out in the city of Corinth. It doesn't look like that at all. But listen, maybe it's Maybe it's different than any church culture you've ever had experience with. Paul pictures here a church where each member walks in the door looking to be a servant rather than to be served. Rather than to be served. There's a shared service and a shared submission around a shared purpose. And so what's that purpose? The edification of God's people for the glory of God. So the picture that's painted for us here is that lots of people are coming into this moment with something to share. Some are bringing a hymn, some are bringing a teaching, some a revelation or a tongue. That's a way to make a name for themselves or even to enjoy expressing themselves when they finally arrived at church. That's not what's going on here. It's not for them. It's not for them. They, They are each bringing their peace as a way of emptying themselves for the good of everyone else. There's an edification-focused purpose to each of these things. And I know some of y'all are trying to do the math in your head right now. Um, singing a hymn is for edification? Like, that's a, like I, I thought we sang to an audience of one, right? We sing as unto the Lord, right? Like, it, aren't the best moments in worship when everybody around you fades, fades away into the background and you don't notice them anymore and it's just you and Jesus? Not according to the Bible. Not according to the Bible. Um, We talked about this a a few months ago in our our But Why series, but part of our purpose when we sing, certainly not all, but part of our purpose when we sing together to God is to also sing to each other. I know that sounds really weird in the church culture that we kind of created our, for ourselves in you know, the current evangelical landscape, but God is not the only audience when the church sings. The rest of the church is also an audience. We build up those around us when we sing together to God and to each other. We spur one another on. But that's for free. Back to our text, verse 27. Paul says this, if any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. 
And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Okay, so like Jeff covered last week, there are some varying opinions within the larger Christian circles uh, over what exactly the, the, the gifts of tongues and, and prophecy are. And, and, and so in the case of tongues, you got this, this kind of pathway that you can walk. Is it a static speech that kind of sometimes fleshes itself out in a private prayer language? Or is it more like what we see early on in the book of Acts where Peter preaches the gospel and everybody in the crowd hears the gospel in their own native tongue. All right? And so there's, there's this pathway that you, you got to walk, and some think it's this over here, and some think it's that over there. I've got strong opinions about it. Maybe you do too. Uh, but the same is true for prophecy. Is it a foretelling of the future that, that's meant to be an authoritative word of the Lord, or is it more of a, of a divinely inspired foretelling that pricks the heart in some kind of special way and then must be tested by the elders in the church, tested according to Scripture? Again, I've got a pretty strong opinion about it. Maybe you do too. But just like last week, Paul doesn't specify here. I think he specifies in a couple other places, but he doesn't specify here. What he is imminently concerned with, though, is that there is a place where those gifts, whatever those gifts look like, there is a place where they cross a line and become a distraction to the church rather than a help to the church. There's a line that is crossed where the good gift of God, as amazing as it is, as wonderful as it is, there's a line that is crossed that when that line is crossed, it's probably best if those gifts go away because they're trouble. So where's that point? What is the line? Well, he tells us it's when everybody's trying to get their word in. When everybody's trying to get their word in, Paul gives an incredibly practical answer here. He says, rather than everybody trying to make sure that they're heard, rather than everybody trying to make sure that they get theirs and they've gotten their turn to express themselves, instead, Paul says, hey, let two, maybe three people speak and then shut it down. He gives an incredibly practical answer. Hey, we don't want chaos in this moment. We want clarity in this moment. He said something pretty similar back in chapter 13. He just did, a lot more, uh, did it a lot more poetically. Uh, in, back in chapter 13, he says, Without love, the use of the gifts are no better than a, than a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. It's a nice little picture. Causes you to think about what those things are. Same deal here. He's just saying it now in a way that all the soulless engineers in the room can finally grab a hold of. Gives them practical stuff. You've got to know your audience. So he gives them a concrete answer. Two or three. Shut it down. We don't want noisy gongs. Shut it down. The specific culture and problems in the city of Corinth, the specific culture and problems in the church in Corinth, it led a lot of people trying to assert themselves and rush ahead to be heard. They wanted to make sure they got their turn because they saw that moment as their opportunity to express themselves, their opportunity to jump to the head, their opportunity to finally be recognized. It was for them. Let a lot of people trying to make sure they got theirs rather than looking to serve. When that was getting their way on some decision or just the joy of acting on their own personal experience, they were looking to get theirs. It's what they walked in the door aiming for. And we can go ahead and add that to the ever 
expanding list of ways that first century Corinthian culture isn't all that different from the culture we find ourselves living in, right? I don't know if you've noticed this, but um, we're, we're surrounded by a world full of people who are just trying to desperately get theirs. Am I wrong about that? But here's the thing with that posture. It will never take long before that posture ends up producing confusion. It always flushes itself out that way. See, when everybody in the room is convinced that their voice is the most important voice, you don't get diversity of thought in that moment. What you get is chaos. What you get is chaos. You get cacophony and confusion. And when that posture creeps into the church, that confusion ends up having eternal ramifications. For starters, because it gives people a wrong impression of God's kingdom, right? The, the upside-down kingdom does, isn't supposed to look like all the other options on the table, but it ends up looking like all the other options on the table, which should be devastating enough to scare us away from that. I mean, I don't ever want to be accused of being guilty of those kinds of things, of adding confusion to what God's kingdom looks like. That sounds like a gigantic problem I want to avoid, but it actually gets incredibly worse than just confusing what God's kingdom is like, because in verse 33, it tells, Paul tells us that it also gives us the wrong impression of what God is like. Like, that's a problem. That's a massive problem. Like, anybody want to be on the hook for that one? Allow me to say out loud, if you've never really thought through it before, the God of the Bible is not a God of confusion. He's not a God of confusion. He's not a God of those fighting by worldly means to get to the top of the pile and serve themselves. No, he's the God of peace. He's the God of peace. He's the one who brings together those who have nothing to offer back to him except their sin. He's the one who, rather than giving us the wrath we rightly deserve, instead has shown us immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus through the sacrificial death of his son on a Roman cross. He is the one who joins us together as a church family that doesn't really have a whole lot of other things going on for us, but he unites us together for our good and for his glory. And he equips us as individuals in the church so that we can serve each other and be a part of expanding his kingdom and glory. Hear me, church. There is nothing, and the correct word is nothing, there is nothing that we hold on to that did not first come from his good hand. And to give the world any other impression than that is a gigantic problem. It's not merely a failure to be grateful. It is also a gross misrepresentation of his good character. It's a problem. No matter what era of history we're talking about, whenever a church or the church, uh, whenever we forget who we are, Right? When we forget where we came from and who God has created us by his grace to be, the church has always been harmed by that failure. We've always hurt ourselves. Unity is broken, the kingdom is defamed, and lost people are prevented from hearing the gospel clearly because they're too distracted by our train wreck. So Paul tells all the wannabe influencers to stop being selfish and instead to sit down and wait their turn. 
wait their turn. The gathering does not exist to give people a platform to express themselves. It is about magnifying the Lord and building up his church, a church that is built by his design, a church that is structured by his command, a church that is supplied for through the gifts that he has seen fit to give to his people. The game is never to do what seems right in our own eyes. The Jews tried that a few millennia ago. It didn't go well for them. It won't go any better for us. But see, our job is to put the beauty of God and his upside-down kingdom on display for others to see. Our job is to, to present or represent his good design as, well, as closely as we possibly can so that when people see us, they get as clear a picture as possible of what he is doing. What people see of God and his gospel, we can say it this way, it's of infinitely greater priority to us than any personal agenda or self-expression, including mine, especially mine, including any other leader here. It's not for us, it's for him. And so we're either using giftings he's given us for his glory or we're way out of bounds. And while that's an easier pill to swallow when we're talking about immature people trying to use their spiritual gifts in a selfish way, spiritual gifts are not the only thing Paul has covered in this issue of churches dealing with stuff when it gathers together. There's another way that the Corinthian church was failing to structure themselves like God has called them to structure themselves. And that picks up in the second half of verse 33. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husband at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Well, there's a landmine. So just, just checking. Am, am I allowed to just read that and walk away? <laughs> we, we covered a little bit of this topic back when we looked at the first part of chapter 11. There, Paul addressed head coverings and as a sign of, of a wife's submission to her husband. And we, and we said back then that texts like these in the Bible often get mistreated in two directions at the same time. They get mistreated in two directions at the same time. Some want, want to make this text say more than it actually says, and they use it as a club to harm people. They do. Um, let me say it unequivocally. that Those people are wicked. Sinful. And they need to repent. Um, but then there's this other group that also misrepresent the text just in the opposite direction. Um, they do everything they can to dismiss it and try to explain it away and, so that they don't have to change how they see the world and think about the world. It sounds repulsive to them, and so they will cling to any excuse they can find to, so that they can ignore it. Um. Both of those postures are sinful. And I believe both of these postures are abusive. Both of these postures are abusive. Why? Because God's word is never a suggestion. Like, like we got to deal with that? 
God's word is never a suggestion, ever. You do actual grave danger to people when you try to pretend that you're smarter than God. It harms people on an eternal scale. But God's word is never a club either. Hear me clearly. God has never, ever needed to force his word in a situation. When seen properly, God's word is a sword that pierces through all of our nonsense, right through bone and marrow and straight into the heart of a person. He doesn't need you or anybody else to enforce his word. His word enforces itself. He doesn't need you. He's got it. So both sides should repent. But the question emerges for us, how in the world do we guard ourselves from the dual abuses of making this paragraph say either too much or too little? Because it's there, we got to deal with it, right? How do we guard ourselves from the, the dual abuses of making this paragraph say either too much or too little? Well, for starters, we need to be very careful to understand exactly what situation Paul is talking about here. All right? uh, in other words, when should women be silent in church? Because um, let's be honest, those that think the passage needs to say less, they're not going to be satisfied with any answer at all. And those that try to make the passage say too much, well, they're not going to be happy either because the answer is not all the time. For um, a couple of reasons for that. One, back in chapter 11, when Paul is addressing head coverings, the specific scenario he's dealing with in that moment is women praying and prophesying in church. Like, do the math in your head for a second. You can't do that while being silent. You got, you got to talk for that. And so either, either Paul has contradicted himself three and a half chapters later, or maybe Paul is speaking to a very specific circumstance in which women need to be silent. I think it's option B. <laughs> I think it's option B. The obvious next question, though, is what exactly is that situation? Well, in verse 32, Paul has just finished talking about the authoritative weighing of prophecy. Someone has claimed that God has called them to say something and now it needs to be publicly tested and then spoken to by the leadership of the church. And a lot of people think that what was likely happening in the Corinthian context is that women were speaking up in that moment, asking a bunch of critical questions and kind of asserting themselves as an authority to speak to that prophetic moment. But that's not their role. It's not their responsibility in that moment. God has raised up specific men in the church to do that. We call them elders. They've been called by God for that purpose. Later on in 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12, Paul is going to clarify this exact same thought. And the reason he tells Timothy later on in that letter is the reason that God raises up church leaders from among the men is because it serves as a model of what God's design in the garden. That's what Paul points to for Timothy. It's not a value statement. It's not a matter of gifting or aptitude. It's not a matter of capacity or skill set. Paul tells Timothy that because of this creation level design, it is therefore improper for women to teach men or exercise authority. It has nothing to do with aptitude. It has nothing to do with skill set or ability. And it certainly has nothing to do with value. No, it is a modeling of God's design as a, far, as, as a thing that we value more than self-expression. A modeling of God's design is something that we value even more than pragmatism. The get it done part. 
And so Paul says that rather than adding to the confusion in that moment, wives can honor both their husbands and the leaders of their church by asking those questions at home. Paul's not against them learning. He doesn't say that they're not allowed to understand these things. It's not for them to, to, to make sense of. He says, ask those questions at home. Go for it. Dig into all the things that you want to understand. Go, like, learn, understand these things as deeply as you're able. Ask all the questions you can. Game this stuff out as much as you want with your husband. But there is a time and a place for such things. And when the church is supposed to be waiting patiently on authority to speak, that's not the place. That's not the place. What we're aiming at during the gathering is to model God's kingdom design and to proclaim the gospel with clarity. Whether we're talking about spiritual gifts or roles that God has laid out for us, we're not here to build our own personal kingdoms, mine, yours, or anybody else's. So I don't see these two and a half verses as a command to you know, exclude women from every part of the church service. I, I, I think chapter 11 takes that away from us. And I certainly don't see it as a, as a command for women to never open their mouths in church. Like, that's a terrible idea. No, the, the, there are things that are within our service that we are excited for women to play a role in. And we want to put, push them forward in those moments. But then there are other things in our service, things that have a teaching or authority element to them that you're just not going to see women doing here. You're just never going to see a woman preaching a sermon in Nashville Baptist Church. Just not. Not because we don't love women. It's not because they're not smart and super articulate. Most of them are way more articulate than I am. Right? It's not because we don't love women. It's because, not because they don't have loads of experience and insight into the Scriptures. It's intellectually dishonest to try to point to the Bible and say, well, the Bible says that. It's not what the Bible says. Not at all what the Bible says. What the Bible does say is that God has raised up men to lead as a picture of his creation-level design. And so to willingly step beyond that is both arrogant and out of bounds for us. We want to honor God's design, so we can't go there. Will that cost us something among those who don't understand and value that same design? <laughs> yeah, it will. Absolutely it will. But is it beautiful? Is it good? Is it true? Does it have eternal value in an otherwise fading world? Listen, we care more about doing things in a way that points people to the beauty of God's upside-down kingdom than we ever care about anything that we might gain by going outside of his design to please a temporary cultural moment. We've got to honor God. The, the temporary mores of the world, those will change next week. So we honor what God has handed to us. The Corinthians, though, they thought that their cultural moment ought to be the deciding factor. So they gave more and more weight to that. They thought that their circumstances and the things that, that they valued in this moment and wanted to chase after in this moment were of greater importance and God's will ought to bend to their design. To what would gain them acclaim. Which is why Paul comes right back in the next paragraph and says this in verse 36. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. 
If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Over and over again, the Corinthian church constantly fell victim to the idea that they were the only game out there. There may be some other churches and other towns trying to do their little thing, but if they wanted to understand how the world really worked, if they want to understand how all these things got figured out and played out in the best possible way, those guys should be looking at Corinth. We got it figured out. Everybody else, watch us. We'll show you how to do it. That's the tone here. And so Paul says, hey, was, was it you? Like, was it through you that God gave us the word? Were you the ones who spoke it to us? Or are you the only ones that's made it to so far? Awesome. You got a word from the Lord. So do I. And now it's time for the apostle to speak. You claim to have a, a special word from the Lord. So do I. And so... But here's the thing. Everybody recognizes that my words, when I speak on behalf of God, they actually come with authority. And so um, you're, you're ready to submit to that, right? And if you struggle to submit yourself to that, if you refuse to submit yourself to that, it says you have no business calling yourself a prophet. It says you won't be recognized. See, regardless of how spectacular someone's gifting happens to be, and regardless of however many earthly successes a leader or a church might be able to, to point to, at the end of the day, the thing that makes both churches and church leaders successful in God's eyes is whether or not they've actually been obedient to his commands. I mean, that's the game regardless of however many things that the world around us can celebrate and point to, there's one measurement for success in God's eyes. doesn't matter if we try to define success on our own terms by, by everybody around us, whether inside or out of the church, loving us and loving everything we do, or maybe even we try to take the opposite route and kind of set ourselves against the culture and now everybody hates us. Neither of those things are actually obedience. The other people's opinions don't weigh anything. But God's opinion of our faithfulness does matter. God's opinion of our faithfulness, whether that faithfulness brings us cultural adoration or cultural hatred, all right? Uh, God's opinion of our faithfulness is the only opinion that ultimately matters at the end of the day. The church at Corinth, they struggled to believe that. And they certainly didn't order themselves in a way that would have them chase it. I told you at the beginning of this series that we're not Corinth, but there's all these little things that if they shift a degree can get us to being like Corinth faster than we realize. This is definitely one of those things. Who are we trying to make much of? If it's me, we got a problem. If it's you, still a problem. If it's Jesus, then we got something going on. And so Paul says in verse 39, So my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Paul didn't have a problem with their spiritual gifts. Paul had a problem with the way they used them and the priorities for which they chased after using them. It's entirely possible to prioritize the wrong thing in the gathering of the church. Even things that we would call good things. 
It's entirely possible to prioritize the wrong thing in the gathering of the church. And listen, I know that I have been guilty of that before. Maybe you have too. Rather than this thing or that thing, Paul tells the Corinthians that what they led people to believe about the character and work of God is what they ought to be the most worried about. It's, it's no different for us when we gather as a church. What people end up understanding about who God is and what he is doing is the only concern that we can focus on here that will not ultimately fade away. Every other thing we chase after here, it's got a shelf life. But what people walk out the door after being here, what they know about God and his good work, what they understand about his kingdom, that has eternal legs. So, so what do we do with this stuff, right? How, how do we respond to God's word today? Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, we respond in the same way that we always do, right? Our normal way. We repent of sin and we lean into what God reveals about himself in the text. And this week, man, I, I think he's showing us that he's the Lord of the church, not us right? We still on the fence about that one? He's the Lord of the church, not us. Certainly not me. We don't get to define the terms here. Our calling is to walk in joy of obedience. That's our call. Seems like a pretty smart idea to continue to come back to that question we asked before. Who are we trying to make much of? What do the, the things that we do when we gather together teach others about who God is and what he has done? And, and listen, if anything that we're doing confuses that moment, confuses that issue, unnecessarily complicates that issue, what do we do about it, right? We want to aim for faithfulness, not success. If God gives us success in the midst of faithfulness, we'll, add it, we'll call it a cherry on top. We want to aim for faithfulness. And sometimes that means asking really, really unpleasant questions that would be easier for us not to ask. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to respond in some other kind of way. Maybe God is calling you to formally commit yourself to our church family through membership. Or maybe God's calling you to finally be obedient to Jesus in baptism. Or listen, maybe, just maybe, God is calling you to leave this context and go to a faraway context where people don't know Jesus yet so you can make disciples there. We call them missionaries. If God's calling you to that this morning. In a second, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. I'll be down front if somebody wants to talk about what that looks like. I'd love to be helpful to you. Uh, what if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet? Can you, can you respond to God's word today? You bet you can. Absolutely. You do that by meeting Jesus. The Bible teaches that all people, by default, are separated relationally from God because of our sin. It teaches that, that we are owed the righteous penalty, the punishment for that sin. The Bible calls it hell. The Bible calls it God's wrath. It's never a fun thing. But the Bible also teaches that God is rich in mercy and loves you with a great love. That even when we are dead in our trespasses and sins, he makes us alive by grace. God sent his son, Jesus put on flesh and dwelt among us. He lived the sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living. He died on the cross as an innocent substitute to make full and final payment for your sin. He was raised again from the dead as a perfect vindication of his righteousness. And now, as the king who conquered sin and death itself, he calls on you this moment to respond to him in repentance and faith, to turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And you can do that in this moment. You don't need me. You don't need some pastor, but man, I'd love to help you think through it, talk about it. What you need is Jesus. And he wants to give you himself if you'll turn to him. And I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. I'll be down there if you want somebody to talk to about it.
whoever you are, however God is calling you to respond to his word this morning. Let's respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for being the God who gives us the church and then tells us how to run it. I gotta admit, sometimes I got ideas. I think my ideas are pretty good ideas. You have not called me to be the idea guy. You've called me to be the obedient guy. So God, where there are things here that don't line up with what you've called us to do and to be, help us change them quickly. God, where there are things that we have built up little mini kingdoms for ourselves, would you tear down those thrones? God, whether you have called us to a specific role or you've given us a gift to act on, would we do all things for the buildup of your church and the expansion of your glory rather than anything that we might dream up ourselves? We love you. Help us love you better. God, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known in this moment? Open eyes to see and ears to hear. Can't use a preacher's words to draw people into the kingdom, but you can change hearts. So do that right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.